This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Michelle Natalia Moore, who helps professional services teams do better work in half of the time. She brings a holistic work design strategy, then supercharges it with MIT's wisdom practices so teams can focus better. She's a consultant, a teacher, a speaker, and she helps you and your teams create more value in half the time with the right work design. She's really kick-ass and awesome. I've just spent a lot of time before we jumped on here looking into her, and I'm really excited to have you here. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Equally excited. Cool. So uh, fill in the gaps. What what didn't I cover in your introduction? Tell me more about like what's your day-to-day look like? You have a super interesting, like I read some of the like the the small factoids about me sort of thing on your LinkedIn. And like, wow, okay, all sorts of you've been all over. Your background is very eclectic and interesting. And I want you to set the stage for people. And then we're gonna dive in on a bunch of different topics. I have like three pages of notes. Let's go. Brilliant. So you actually pose a question in your brief sheet that says, how has technology impacted you, your work and or your life? So I was thinking about that. So I'd like to answer that question because it does tell the story of why I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is helping teams focus better. And so I grew up in Houston, right behind Mission Control, right behind NASA Space Station, NASA Space Center. And so my neighbors were astronauts. I, I, the Challenger disaster really affected me because I swam on swim team with the son of Mike Smith. And so I grew up seeing these rockets, you know, in fields. So space was a thing. And then I happened to, you know, because I'm half German, half American, now Canadian as well, um, I grew up in Germany and the U.S. And, you know, when I finished my bachelor's degree at the University of Texas, I managed to get a job at MTV Europe in Munich, Germany. And their technology, again, was interesting in, in its impact to work because it was the year the Berlin Wall fell down. And I was part of this team in Germany helping to launch music television in the two East German hotels, literally the day after that wall came down. MTV launched in two of the hotels on the east side. And that was super meaningful to me because my mother escaped from East Germany when she was a child. So that whole history is also in in the family. So, so So we start out with space tech in Houston, then we go to kind of TV tech satellites in Eastern Europe. And then the Eastern Europe journey kind of continues. I'd been a Russia buff kind of since a child. I was always interested in Russia. And I got a job in Houston that financed my MBA being the project manager of the Soviet space exhibition as it traveled the United States. So here I am project managing this science exhibition coming delivered you know, from Moscow with real flown space craft, space modules, space, Russian spacesuits, all this stuff, and real live cosmonauts coming in and out of the exhibition to interact with the population, you know, the audience coming to the exhibit. So I was involved in that for a couple of years. 
and and did some other crazy things just because of this this Russian American joint venture that I was working in, um, like trying to sell a communication satellite to Argentina, a Russian communication satellite in Argentina. Um, so so the Russia theme continues because after I get my MBA at the University of Houston, I decide. Well, first of all, I fall in love with my first husband, who who's half Russian, half Armenian, in Houston at the University of Houston, and but I always wanted to go to Russia anyway. So I'm like, okay, graduate, yeah, move to Russia, no problem. And I got a job at Price Waterhouse as a consultant. And I kind of always say, when you don't know what to do with yourself, you become a management consultant. Oh my God, <laughs> but, that is so true. Yeah, it's so true. And and it's it's still, I'm still- I went to business school, what do I do? Yeah, yeah you exactly, about consulting, exactly. You can do anything. You know, and that's when the, the technology career started because I ended up in the SAP implementation practice and I ended up managing, creating and leading a bunch of practices in Russia. I was there for 15 years, including cybersecurity, SAP, e-procurement, um, governance, risk and compliance. And, and so that leads me, so fast forward to then I... I get divorced, I marry a Canadian, that's why I'm in Canada. And uh, since coming to Canada, I completely left the corporate world and began to really learn about social impact, philanthropy, nonprofit sector, and worked in tech serving that. Um, and then COVID hit. I was rolling off a project and I realized I'd been observing teams for the last couple of years with this tension between distraction and attention and became fascinated by my own addiction to multitasking and all of the problems associated with that. And I'll stop there because that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. I'm helping teams focus better so that they can harness this invisible secret asset that's more valuable than money that nobody in the workspace is really designing for, which is attention management. I love it. And what's really interesting about it, first of all, thank you for sharing your background. Uh, I'm always fascinated to hear people's journeys of how they get to where they are, because sometimes they're, um, even if it's like a circuitous route, it's like, it almost looks like a straight line. Yours is one of those ones where, you know, if you had told me you worked, um, you know, you went through all these different things and you worked for like Facebook and Google, and then you were like, ah, I see what it's doing to our attention. Like it would have been like a natural, like, ah, if this, then that happened. But your experience with technology was all very much in technology that is progressing and moving humankind forward in a lot of ways. You've got space technology, you know, you were there um, at the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you're there for a pivotal moment in history and, you know, uh, the the birth of democracy in, in Germany on the, the other side of the wall. So there was a lot of things you were involved in where it was like, obviously, very noble ambitions and things like that. And then you come back after, you know, the time in the corporate world and working in PricewaterhouseCooper and the consulting. And, you know, you come back and now you're thinking about attention and distraction. And you've probably seen that across all of the different things you did. But it's interesting how it wasn't like a, you did this thing where you were on the other side of it and you had a, a kind of a come to Jesus moment had to be on the other side. It's more of a natural progression. So I was really um, fascinated as I was looking into all of your stuff, obviously about um, your, your work and attention and distraction, first and foremost, because I have attention deficit disorder and I have an immense amount of problems uh, trying to find my focus. If I find it, if I lose it, it's like a catastrophe. And it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an idea that I've always been really fascinated with personally. And then on the other side, my background of uh, running a social media agency, the whole purpose of uh, you know, the, the whole intent behind social media is to capture people's attention and not let it go. Right. So um, I was in that world of 
the distraction, the attention, the multitasking, and being partly the cause of it. So I'm really interested to go down the rabbit hole with you. The, the first part of it is I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what you mean by attention. So um, there's sort of the mindfulness side of attention. There is the uh, what are the things that we are uh, focused on that are inputs and in influencing how we think about things. There's sort of like the woo-woo side of like, um, you know, it, it can get very into that, like, oh, uh, pseudoscience or, or like mysticism or anything like that. So there's a lot of different ways that attention is being used in the, in the discourse. I want to know exactly what you mean by it before we go down the rabbit hole. Sure. It's a great question because when people often interchange the words focus and attention. And when I started to dive into this, I found one, lots of research on, on all of this, but what captured me, what captured my attention on the topic of attention was that attention is a function of the body, much like a circulatory system or a respiratory system. And when you think about attention, attention is what you have. Let's say you're picture yourself as a unicyclist Done. sitting on this bike Got it. and you feel the heaviness of your body on the seat. It's embodied, right? And because if you lose your attention, which is not just what you're focusing on when you're riding, you have a focal point probably when you're you know, riding that unicycle, but if you're not centered in your body, present in the moment on that bike with that piece of tech, with that bike, you're gonna fall off. And focus in contrast to attention is a skill and an act of will that can be trained through mindfulness meditation and many other things, right? So that's sort of a main difference that I, that I like to make. Is that, is, does that help? It does. Let me ask you a question. Is that to say then attention is not a function of will? Because it, you, if you lose your attention on that unicycle seat, you fall off. So are you directing your focus to keep your attention? It, yes. I'm trying to understand. Okay, good. I just want to yes. make sure I'm understanding how those two things interplay. Yes, yes. Okay. Focus is directly linked because it, it, that is your act of will and your skill because you can train it and improve it. Um, and it impacts attention. And so, so that's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So where does distraction then come in? Is that something that interrupts attention or is that interrupting focus or where does that come into to play? Because I know a lot of your work is about dealing with workplace distraction, team distraction, distractions of all sorts. Where does that come in? Help define that term. So I'm not a scientist on this and my angle on it is the workplace because everything I've ever done since my twenties has been in the workplace with teams. Mm -hmm. um, and it is both. So distraction impacts our focus and because it impacts our focus, it impacts our attention. Got it. But I look at the five elements that impact our attention in the workplace as, as a holistic view on how can we harness and protect this asset called attention. And attention is impacted by five things. And so I can go into that. That's sort of the Don't how. Don't go into but, that yet. I want to, there's I'll a couple more you, questions yeah. I have, because I have that on my list that you put them out there and I definitely want to go deeper into that, but I want to set up some more pieces first. When we think about attention as a function of work and we think about the impact of what that could make, I think the natural sort of like level one thinking about this is like, oh, I don't want my people like spending their time on Facebook when they should be focused on work, right? Like I think that that's 
that's very much a model of like the attention issues we have at work are this. People are getting too distracted and not getting their work done, right? Then maybe there's like the level two where it's like, we're not, uh, we're not necessarily focused on the most important work we could do, but it's still very much at like a, a day-to-day thinking. I, f- I get the sense from reading your materials that you think a little bit bigger than that. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about where attention may, maybe like to make it real, like think about like professional services as like a, a, a niche to focus on. So professional services company, why does attention matter in a professional services company and where are you looking to make that impact? Yeah. So you've articulated exactly my target market, the knowledge worker market or the professional services firm, which mm-hmm. can include technology developers as well. Um, and Why that market is so important is because that market, those professionals must do a certain amount of deep work as defined by Cal Newport, right? Um, To create value, to sustain their competitive advantage in the market because they primarily think for a living. And so if we go to the pain points of this getting back to your question on what is distraction. Distraction is a, a larger, is an umbrella pain point or it's a symptom. And the pain points of distraction in the professional services firm or the knowledge worker community is that one, they can't sustain advantage because well-being is going down. We've got aspirational people working hard, thinking hard, driving themselves, spending all day in Zoom meetings and doing creative work or value creation work at night and on weekends. So we've got burnout risk and we also have the tendency to task switch all the time because as I've been a knowledge worker my whole life, I love task switching. I get high on busyness. It gives me a dopamine hit, right? And um, we're encouraged to multitask. I used to hire people and ask in interviews, are you a good multitasker, right? This is terrible. Um, so the pain points are decreased well-being, decreased innovation because we're not harnessing attention, and decreased effectiveness. Yes, that productivity stuff is there. Don't look at Facebook, but you're right. It's transactional, and that is not the whole picture. Got it. Okay, so this feels like to me, so I, I ran my own agency for um, about seven years, got acquired by a large agency, was there for a year and a half. I've been in agencies for a good portion of my career uh, in, in most recently. And one of the things that I've seen that is... I think that one of the bigger challenges to attention is this sense that everything is important, right? Like I, I'm a big, so have you read um, Essentialism by um, uh, McKeon? I forget his name. I haven't, it, it, no. It's a great book. I feel like you would like, if you like deep work, you'll love Essentialism, but it, it's, um, it's the idea that essentially you, you have to dispense with all that is unimportant and focus on the things that are most important. Like what are you to do with this one precious life that you have sort of thing. And um, in the agency world, it felt like um, everything is a top priority and constantly like putting out fires, feeling burned out, all that sort of stuff. And um, I'm curious if that's, if the, if what you're saying, all of what you're saying made perfect sense, right? Like we don't want to be burned out and that interrupts our well being and, and like makes us not feel good. We're not as innovative for stretch then. If we're multitasking, we're not paying enough attention to do deep work and creative work and good work. So why, why is everyone still doing it? Like literally every agency I refer to as a flaming dumpster fire like moving at hundred miles an hour. Why is it still that way? If we, if we know not only experientially that it's terrible, we have data I'm sure to support that it's not the best way. 
Why is it still happening? And what's, what's the intervention that makes the most sense to start with? Yeah, so you've touched on the point of um, workplace design that hits on culture. How do we design a culture that protects and harnesses this asset called attention? And when you take the flavor of culture as you described it in digital agencies, they, there's this combat between, yes, everything is important and a digital agency has the responsibility to capture attention. So these are two polarizing things. Um, when you talk about the professional services firm, which has a little bit of a different culture, the challenge is how do we get out of this unwritten policy in our culture that we have of instant response, that everything is important. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot with tech clients and they say, you know, we've got slack on crack. We have to be in every channel internally, and then we need to respond to our clients. And somehow this unwritten rule appeared in our culture. We don't know when it appeared. No one had a meeting and said, let's just do instant response. It has just emerged. So one of the first things in culture design is tackling the question designed for a particular team and because different teams could be have different needs for instant response on let's come to some shared agreements, co-created shared agreements on how do we, when do we engage in instant response? What is the definition of important for a client or important internally? With an emergency room doctor, it's crystal clear. It's important. I'm here to save a life. I'm going to be focused on that. No questions asked. My, maybe that's an unwritten rule, but it's a pretty clear one. In the knowledge worker space, it's very mucky and blurry. So you've touched, so I don't know what digital age, I've never worked with a digital agency. I don't know how they, I think that's a hard nut to crack, combating that goal or purpose of capturing attention without doing harm. Um, yeah. I'll leave that well, to you. <laughs> well, well, so you said the slack on crack thing and that really like that resonated for me because my experience with a lot of digital agencies is the adoption of digital tools, the usage of digital tools, the belief that digital tools makes our lives, make our lives better. And then oftentimes we, you know, you run into the exact situation you're describing where slack becomes more of a responsibility. You don't have any time to do your work because you're spending all day in slack, feeling like you missed something feeling like, you know, you have to be on top of every instant response. What I was thinking as you were talking about that was, do you, in your experience and in your work with clients in different environments, are there any things that you, like, let, let's say I could give you a magic wand. Would you get rid of things like Slack? Would you get rid of certain types of distractions? Would you engineer certain things, you know, that you definitely want to have in every organization, like block scheduling around emailing or, or any, is there anything that you would universally say this good, this bad, based upon what we've seen? So I don't think there's anything that's universal. I think you have to design across these five elements that impact attention in the workspace. We've touched on culture, instant response. We've touched on tools. Yep. Do we Can, can we get rid of shiny new tool syndrome? And for which in each team, there's also going to be a different need for what's the minimum portfolio of digital tools that we want or truly need to be in and which are optional yep. because this shiny new tool syndrome is 
a widespread issue, especially if you're a tech company or a knowledge worker, because you love tools naturally. And so you have too much stuff. So, so there is, you know, I, I, I could just say, follow digital minimalism, another book by Cal Newport, yeah, good one. And, and just, just assess which are the minimum tools you need for communication, for industry specific purpose, for value creation, and then say the other ones, let's just set them aside. That is, that is one part of the tools design, right? So I don't know if I've answered your question because it's a, I can't, it's a very long answer because there's a unique need to design for any team or organization. What is the right design to protect attention across those five elements that impact our attention? Got it. So I think one of the things that so far in this conversation is that I'm I'm like super interested in all of this stuff and I've taken us down a circuitous and random kind of route and you have a very structured approach to some of these things that I think that that's actually where we should double back to, which is these five elements of organizational attention. And I know you've kind of dropped them in to answer some of my uh, sort of random questions about these different things, but let's kind of recenter on it. And can you take us through those five, uh, those five different components and, and talk a little bit about what each of them, how they each fit together to create an organization that can have a little bit more granularity and control around their attention. Sure. So when I look at the workspace and the workplace, so space and place and humans in it, um, I, based on experience and based on a lot of research that I did during COVID, this was born during COVID. This is a COVID yeah, a COVID creation, I would say. Um, these five things emerged. So, and this is based on 25 years working in professional services firms and with tech companies. So the first element that impacts our attention is our ability to focus. And again, focus being a skill. How well are we training focus ourselves in the workplace and or in the workplace? And do we know what to focus on? Have we created a value creation portfolio? Do we know our portfolio of work? Which tasks create value aligned with purpose of what the higher purpose and what the revenue purpose is of our organization or our team? And do we know how much time we should be spending on logistical transactional tasks? And to your question again, and do we block time then? If we know what our value creation portfolio is, are we blocking time to allow for the deep work that needs to happen to create that value? to create valuable assets, right? Um, so that is focus. The second piece, so we start there because if we don't know what the value creation portfolio is, we really can't do the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the skill piece. Uh, the second one is culture. And they're all equally important, but I do think order is important in, in terms of design as well. Mm -hmm. So culture is a very difficult task to shift. And culture, of course, is the beliefs, the mindsets, the values, the traditions, the language, in the, the habits, the unwritten rules in the organization. And when we ask ourselves the question, so I ask the teams the question, well, what would a team or an organization that protects and harnesses attention feel like? And what would it look like? So we get to visioning, okay, what elements of culture, what unwritten rules, what mindsets do we need to shift in order to have a culture that holds space for attention to have enough space itself to uh, be treated as a valuable asset like money? Let me pause you on that real quick. Very quick question. Do you find that 
the answers are routinely the same? Because my, my sense of it is like, it's sort of like when you ask, um, you look at like companies like values, it's like integrity, innovation. Mm -hmm. Like you tend to see the same things because I think that's what companies want in order to achieve, you know, maximum revenue generation, et cetera, et cetera. So I would imagine that there are certain criteria that are always going to be connected to creating organizations where attention is valued. It's often the case, but I like to take it down to, let's look at, you can have the organizational level, the team level, and the role, the job role level. So I like to challenge teams to look at the job role. And this particular job role has a unique value creation portfolio. And then the sum of those job roles that are in a team have the collective value creation portfolio. And so based on those portfolios, we get the nuances of culture design. Yes, there are shared things, but I do think it is a mistake to assume that one organization, even an organization of 20 people or 50 people, small organization, could have the exact same design because the needs are different per job role and per team type. Got it. And there are probably certain types of distractions that are unique to individual organizations um, or certain needs that are uh, unique to individual roles. So, okay. So I guess yeah. so there's probably like in a Venn diagram, there's probably a bunch of overlap, uh, but then yeah. there's a bunch of stuff that isn't. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so continue the third one. So the third one is balance. And I think if you looked at my website, you'll still see old graphics that say body wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, because this is, and I've changed it to balance to be a more palatable word. To me, this is the balance in the workplace that we have between body and mind in terms of are we present constantly in our heads, thinking, 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 talking, 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 or are we present in our bodies actually noticing things about the team, noticing things about insight, having access to wisdom rather than just intelligence. So this balance between body and mind, balance between intelligence and wisdom, and balance between the digital and the physical. And so in COVID, of course, we got out of whack because our heads are always in screens. And this balance piece, designing the right balance for particular teams depends also on how much creative, innovative work do they need to be doing? How much collaborative work do they need to be doing? Do we have a 100% virtual team or not? Do we have a hybrid team, right? And how do we allow people rest from screens um, to be able to get back into the body for well-being and for innovation and for tapping into wisdom? So that's that's probably the most nebulous piece where we're also intersecting with some of those things that you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the, the more wooey stuff you might say, but I ground that in MIT's practices, mm -hmm. um, which are developed at the Presencing Institute, which has this flavor of, okay, how do we innovate and create and have authentic transformation in an organization or a system, but incorporating practices that tap into the body-mind balance and the wisdom box as well as the intelligence box and incorporating so, reflective practice into that to it to achieve that balance because in society we're out of whack mm -hmm. i'd imagine so one i really like the shift to the word balance uh for a variety of reasons i also just think it communicates really well 
um, especially since being out of balance um, is something that I think is so relatable in work. Um, the second thing is, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd imagine of the five, I'm like, I have them in my notes, the five, it would seem to me that this is the one that's going to be the heaviest lift or, or the biggest like challenge for you to get buy-in from some types of leaders. The rest of them all make perfect sense because they almost feel like they're, they're more uh, commonly accepted, thought about sort of things, maybe not attended to, maybe they're not paying attention to them, but they are at least more widely thought about, um, in, at least in a macro or micro level, whereas this one was like, well, that might not have any place in the workplace, right? Like, why do we care about uh, our, our mindfulness presence of, like, let them be who they want to be, just show up and do your job, right? Like, I'd imagine yeah. this is the one that has a little bit of a wrestling that you have to do. You are absolutely right. Uh, but this is the superpower. This is the superpower of the whole thing because this is the most underutilized piece of design that we have in terms of tapping into collective wisdom, harnessing collective. We talk about collective intelligence where we're harnessing data mining and data mm -hmm. we can see, but harnessing collective wisdom is something that is very new. And yes, it is a hurdle but it is the thing I am most passionate about because it has the quickest impact. It is actually the easiest. Once you get over the hurdle of understanding that this is actually quite normal, it's been around for thousands of years and practices as simple as just journaling together, right? You don't have to go into the woo-woo space at all, yeah. but just drawing drawing pictures of how you interpret a challenge and sharing those, just getting out of dialogue and into reflective practice of different flavors. It could be gameplay like the empathy toy or the failure toy. Um, uh, so there are very, there are different levels of getting people into a psychologically comfortable space. Um, the most progressive leaders will, will go for the whole thing and, and probably have had, you know, maybe, have had experience in such practices, but um, yeah, it's the toughest nut to crack, but it's the fastest impact. I was, it's, I'm glad you ended on that because I was going to say, I feel like this is the one where seeing is believing happens the most quickly, right? So like you do a creativity exercise with the group or a brainstorming exercise or any sort of exercises like that, or even a mindfulness breathing exercise or anything like that, you immediately feel the difference. Um, at the beginning of some meetings, uh, a partner of mine, we have a, a, a program called uh, Super Productive. And one of the things that we do with clients is we do a, um, a productivity power hour. And at the beginning of it, one of the things we have to really do is, is make sure that we get everybody in the right headspace to be in a productivity power hour. And part of that is like shedding the general, like uh, work, whatever, but like actually getting people to just embrace this hour, like be present in this hour to be productive and walking people through that. Like in less than five minutes, you can get somebody who maybe had a, a full day of whatever uh, stress and, and whatever's going on to just set that aside for the moment and really be in that meeting and, and be able to be productive during that time. So I, I, I completely get why that would be the heaviest lift, but also the fastest impact and why it's so critical, especially everything you've listed here uh, that I have in my notes, but like interconnectedness, empathy, creativity, insight, like obviously all of that stuff is critical. So, all right. So take us through the, the final two. Uh, I will try to not interrupt the, the, uh, the last two, but that interrupt one, as much as you want. And, and thanks for that example, because 
that is an example of a reflective practice and why it's so powerful that you're yeah. doing in, in your, in your productivity hour. There. It only took, it takes less than five minutes, which is the other thing about it is like yeah. this, some of this could sound like it's like, Oh God, we have this whole organizational change, but it's like, no, no, like literally every meeting you could do two minutes and it would potentially change the entire course of your company. Absolutely. Couldn't yeah. agree more. And so happy to hear that, that you're doing that. Um, the last two are the easy ones. They're the ones we can see and touch. Yep. We can see and touch tools. We can see and touch our physical environment and we can see kind of touch our virtual space, right? So it's just, so the tools piece we touched upon a bit. What is the tool portfolio? What do we really need? What can we pair back? Can we become digital minimalists and thus create more space and less multitasking and less notifications, et cetera? And how do we deal, how do we, how are we in intentional relationship with the tools then we decide to use? Do we have phones in another room when we are working or, what, or during our deep work time? Can the phone be in a completely different room or simple things like turning off all notifications, um, even on the laptop? Simple yeah. things like, you know, stop using 10 open tabs simultaneously, you know, on two screens or something. Um, that's the whole relationship with tools, the portfolio and, and how are we interacting with them? And the final one is the physical space design and the virtual space design. And the physical space design of course is now always shifting. And we see so many articles about these hybrid organizations. Some people are going fully remote. When you're going fully remote, what do you do? So that's very much an HR and space design driven piece as well. So I partner with people on that. Um, uh, I don't have detailed expertise in, in that physical space piece. And the virtual space is of great interest, however, because we are also creating, how do we maintain and hold space as facilitators or as leaders or as meeting organizers even for interconnectedness online? for a video on culture or not, or when do we do video on? When do we allow you know, the brain to rest a bit and have video off because there's a case for both? And um, how do we create psychological safety in the virtual space, right? Especially in the virtual space and inclusion and all of that. So those two, frankly, I believe are the easiest ones to tackle. And that's why I put them at the end because if you start with most of what I see as, you know, sort of sort of competition, I guess, if I don't believe really in competition in, in this world anymore, but uh, when you see other organizations doing offering similar services to mine or that sound similar, they're mostly focused on tools and space. Yeah, and um, I, it, it, it's the sort of thing where any productivity conversation that I've ever really been in starts first with tools, then it might go into like strategy, like productivity strategy, but it rarely goes into the level of how are we thinking about productivity? How are we working together as a team? How, what are we focusing on? How are we focusing on it? All of those sorts of conversations generally get kind of left in the dust. Um, you know, it's interesting though, that I, I have deleted the word or I'm trying to delete the word productivity from my vocabulary and use effectiveness only because for me, productivity treats human beings like a machine Yeah, and productivity is mostly in, like in my experience. Yeah. yeah. It's performance, it's striving, it's, it's metrics based and I have nothing against metrics, but can we have metrics on effectiveness, right? And productivity is getting things done. Effectiveness is getting the right things done. 
So when we know our purpose, when we know the value we're creating, can we set the metrics based on, oh, well, how many assets did I create this week? Not how many emails did I send or, or whatever it might be. Um, so I'm very much uh, challenging myself and my clients to move away from, from this word productivity and let it involve, evolve to the more, again, holistic or inspirational word of effectiveness. And not yeah. efficiency, right? Efficiency is doing things correctly, doing things right. Yeah, with little So waste. these are word nuances that are really interesting, but I think they're quite powerful. Yeah, and actually you, you've just gotten me thinking about the word productivity and like how I relate to it personally versus how I'm using it professionally. And I, I actually see exactly what you're saying. I don't really care about the quantity of your output and, you know, the efficiency of your output so much as I care about, are you working on things that are important? Do you working on things you care about? How do you feel? All that sort of stuff is a lot more important to me. So I, I a hundred percent buy in with that. So let me end on this question and ask you um, if you could do me a favor and, and for the audience that's listening, describe what sort of the ideal super attention powered organization might look like. Like what is, what does it look like when you pay attention to those five? How might the organization approach each of those things to design the ideal workspace? What is the outcome they're looking for? Kind of just paint, paint Camelot for us of like, you follow the advice that you're putting out here that attention is important, perhaps the most critical asset. Let's say that we buy into that and we go through the entire process of designing that workspace. What's it look like? What's the outcome? So the outcome is an organization that is doing better work in less time. So they're high on innovation, high on well-being, and high on effectiveness without working more than 40 hours a week. And the end game is they are sustaining their market advantage with social impact, with good revenue, both and, and all three at the same time. These three metrics to me are, are fused in, in one thing, innovation, high innovation, high well-being, and high effectiveness. That is that sounds, the outcome. That sounds awesome. I think everybody would yeah. want that. I all right, too. well, uh, I think you've been a fascinating guest and um, really interesting to talk to you about all of these things. I'm, I'm on board with everything you're talking about, um, but we're coming to the end of our episode. So I want to give you a chance to just tell everyone where they can go and be social with you, where they can learn about you, download something. If you've got anything for them to download, buy something, if you've got something to buy, just this is your chance for like unabashed, shameless promotion. Uh, I save it at the end so that nobody has to feel bad about it. Just go nuts. Thank you, Jeff. So it's simple. Um, my website is at mindequity.ca for Canada. So mindequity.ca. And on mindequity.ca, you'll see a free tool that lets you in less than five minutes assess your current state of your ability to harness attention. So it's called the Focus Scorecard. And it is 20 simple questions, and you can see where you rate in each of those five areas of focus, culture, balance, tools, and environment. And then you can reach out um, and have a discovery call. You can, what I'm also offering right now for target clients, which are knowledge worker organizations or professional services firms, is I'm testing a 50 question attention audit. So anybody who wants a 50 question attention audit, you start by doing the short one and then it'll, you'll get to a section and it'll ask you, do you want to um, 
qualify for the attention audit. And that'll give you a report. So I put together a report on how your collective team, so that invites your team of 10 or more people to do the audit. And I give a collective response um, and an interactive talk as well to share back the results. Um, and that is something that is, is going on currently. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I love the kind of work that you're doing. I love that you're out there doing it. I love that you're trying to address anything that makes workplace well-being more of a, a high priority because um, I think it's, it's about time that we have more of that focus. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for coming on. I think the episode was great. Uh, if you're listening, please go, uh, go tell someone about it. Share this episode, which I guess makes this podcast, as I often say, shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.